Exactly, Chi Chi. I'm so popular. Last week on the show, we looked at Mobile Suit Gundam and the poetry of Secret Sassoon, uh, looking at war as a means of understanding suffering and the other. And today we are looking at two debut novels of English homosexuals as we dive deeper into the Anglosphere with Alan Hollinghurst's The Swimming Pool Library and Furbank's Oh my god, I'm forgetting the title. Vile something. What is it again? Vainglory. Oh no. <laughs> Vainglory. <laughs> I just read it today for the first time, but I'm joined by a really special guest. Who are you? Um, I am, I'm Yik, I guess I'm known by now. Um, Yik P or P Yik. Um, Hi, how are you doing? I'm great. I'm really excited to be doing this. Uh, it's, it's like an honor to be on uh, I'm So Popular. Wonderful. Um, so I usually ask, uh, what are you doing? So what is it that you're up to? Um, right now, I'm uh, I'm basking in the the sunlight that is uh, coming through into our sort of like uh, back study. Love it. Um, and I have to ask, why do you follow me? Um, I think I'm trying to remember when I first um, became aware of you. I think. Um, it may have been like the episode you did with Logo. Um, oh, great. Which I really, really enjoyed. Uh, I'm like a big fan of his. And I, the thing that like immediately caught my attention as well was like the conceit of like the subject of the episode was a like, was it like a 30 second long video clip or something? That's right. Which I just thought was like genius. And it's, it's like so cool uh, to just, because the sort of like, podcast format of like uh you know talking about like a book or or a film or an album has kind of been established now and i thought it was really like it was a real like innovation to sort of like just extend that to like a 30 second video clip um and to sort of like consider it as an aesthetic object um so i think that like that tipped me off that you were a uh, like a, a person doing interesting things Oh, thank you very much. I, I remember talking to you first in a Twitter space and being immediately charmed by you. But um, oh, thank you I'm so really much. Glad- I was very. I thought you were very sweet and interesting and um, well spoken. And uh, hearing about like your own like uh, academic and literary interests was lovely. But I'm like amazed that you were introduced to me through that um, logo episode. It's one of my favorites, and it got totally drowned out by the Kyle Rittenhouse trial, which was the most annoying thing yeah, that's ever right. happened in my life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was, a, I remember that was a, like, a, I, I think I managed to like, get through that entirely unscathed. I don't think I said one thing about it. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, the psychic war that was incurred. But I mean, I yeah. was just, um, I was like, this is one of the most genius things I've ever done. This is so bizarre. And I like got one of like Twitter's like biggest like personalities to talk about this like video that makes me horny. And like, I thought it was was so, uh, I thought it was such the moment. I could not believe I got killed by politics once again, but thank you for listening to it. Oh no, it's great. I I re-listened to it recently and I I really enjoyed it again, but I I actually think I remember that Twitter space now you think of it, because I think that might be the one where um, I guess like our, our, our mutual acquaintance entrepreneur vile had just been like uh like summons to, to like uh i don't know like the dean's office or something about his like twitter page like he'd been yes, that's right he'd been discovered <laughs> <laughs> his twitter got found um Vil is an interesting character because he plays a part in the 
uh, secret I'm so popular sub narrative, which is uh, the I'm so popular Discord, uh, where he was a part of the Zoomer committee. And uh, if you want access to that, you have to pay me five dollars a month, and I'll send you a Discord link. But <laughs> yeah, see. Right, he's right. he's a he's quite the character. Yeah, I've known I've known him for a while. I know he like I don't know if he actually is the same person as Life in Rat Utopia, or like there was he kind of like there or maybe he's just like a sort of like escaped alter ego from. Uh, but I like that guy as well. Um, but yeah, he's he's always been an interesting poster. And I believe he's like he's working on some kind of frequently alluded to novel or something. <laughs> I've read passages. I'm very excited to see the the final product. Fantastic. Um, but I'm I'm really glad you're here. I think uh, you have a, a very particular, interesting internet persona that has uh, attracted lots of uh, attention, evidently. And I think that not only are you um inclined to the English literary world in a, a way I find very uh, touching and exciting, but you are also just a really sweet, affable person that I, I have enjoyed talking to, so I'm, I'm very glad you're here. But I'm also oh, curious, you. like, how did you get wrapped up in this scene? Um, it's, oh, it's a good question. I don't know. I've, I always used to just, like, uh, look. I, I, it's, I used to go and look at people's... Um, like Twitter feeds for a long time before I had an, an account. I remember like back in like 2016, um, when I was at uni and I, I didn't have a, la a laptop at the time. Mine had just broken. And I used to just like, I had this kind of like nocturnal existence and I <laughs> used to like go to like my university library and um, like uh, try very hard to like remember the name Anna Kachian <laughs> like because I'd like to kind of come across her tweets a few times and I'd always like forget her name but I'd like I, you know I'd always go on this quest through Twitter to try and uh, come across her account again and I, then I when I found it I would just like read through all her tweets and I was just really like fascinated by her her kind of uh, like I guess persona and stuff so and then I think um a bit later on once I finished uni I like made my own account um mainly just because I wanted to like talk to Logo because I was really like kind of um fascinated by him just because we shared loads of like interests uh in both in like literature and in music but then at the same time he was kind of like uh just this sort of uh, he was like attached to this kind of like vaguely right-wing world of like christianity and like tr i guess like sort of you know bronze age pervert and the sort of like trad values and stuff and it was all very like heady and and uh, i guess like um you know i have a very similar story of like alienation from popular culture to a lot of people my age when that sort of old story of like you know, I was like an anarchist when I was a teenager and stuff. I mean, which is a pretty meaningless, like, self-descriptor. But, you know, that's kind of where I was, like, locating myself. And actually, um, you know, uh, in one of my sort of attempts at university, which took a few tries, I was, like, you know, part of, part of like, the feminist society, you know? Oh, yeah, no, so, I was uh, fully the, yeah. the um, copy editor of a feminist magazine in right. college. and. I have no regrets about it whatsoever. Mm. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I, I ended up like getting kind of like kicked out, right? 
right because I, I was just like naive 19 year old or something and i was so like, did i yeah at yeah. age 19 as well i got i got ousted from the um the feminist magazine for um asking for too much money for our print budget and it was a, a man taking over a woman's face <laughs> <laughs> yeah so yeah you know like i um it, it was it I guess it was like the right moment for all this kind of like milieu to have this kind of dangerous exciting aura about it so I kind of got interested in that and I think like for a long time I had this idea of Twitter as this kind of like um like kind of bacterial ecology or something where Certainly. I was I was like following all these like people who with like very problematic views I guess and it, but it was like I had this idea that it was kind of like health healthy in some way to like just be assimilating this stuff. It was all like being kind of uh, um, like just assimilated into like my psychic stomach in some way and something mm-hmm. like good would be produced by it. Um, and it's, it's kind of funny in a way because like I've kind of, it's been maybe like two years now since I started this account, I guess. And I haven't actually become racist anti-semitic or homophobic even though i've kind of been like surrounded by a lot of that stuff for a while and become friends with a lot of people who are those things yeah no totally i honestly Um, i think today is like a full circle for the entire political movement because um i'm i'm officially announcing that i am no longer based i am no longer red-pilled i am a (laughs) like i'm a mid-80s uh, homosexual supremacist, and I hate homophobia. <laughs> I love trans rights. <laughs> and I love Desmond is amazing, and I only want to talk about faggot English novels in the 20th century with my internet friends so that I can um, be philosophically assured of my own vision. Yeah, I mean, you know, like, it's, I'm, I don't like, uh, like, I guess what is is called like wokeness you know and i guess it's, it's like a, one of these things where it's like it's a very like formative thing for me because i kind of grew mm-hmm. up through it and uh but you know like th- it's like the reason i don't like that stuff is because i feel like it's there's something about it that like it's so like um sort of like t- totalitarian and uh like schematizing you know i mean it's like really like this is like where I think uh, Foucault's like history of sexuality is actually really, really useful as a kind of analysis. Um, because to me, it's like, you know, like the sort of Tumblr identity thing, it's like people turning themselves into like sexual logic gates or something. Um, yeah, exactly. Like the flipping links inside of a computer. Exactly. And so like the, the, the real horror of it all for me is like that it's, it's like corrosive to human intimacy you know but then yeah it's like the flip side of that is like this is what was funny when everybody was like uh well not everybody but like a very small minority of like miserable persons were like quote tweeting my like uh you know defense of you <laughs> like you know like uh like what they were saying like wow like people are really showing their true colors and it was like I've never heard of you in my life, (laughs) (laughs) but like, you know, um, like the whole point is like the, uh, the kind of like importance of like real friendship and real, like, you know, uh, like genuine social ties between people and stuff. And like, I'm not going to just like, um, 
you know, just like immediately sort of disassociate myself from someone who is like, you know, a friendly, charming and interesting person and who like produces something sort of like genuinely kind of artistically worthwhile, you know, like on the basis of like, to me, those that kind of like dispo that sense of disposability, right, is exactly what I'm like, most truly opposed to it as I as I see it. Yeah, me as well. I honestly, because, you know, another wonderful thing about the, like, mid-80s gay activists that I am now deciding to emulate for the rest of my life is that they also, like, hate wokeness. Like, there was, like, endless uh, battles within, like, their social fields about accepting which and which, you know, race and gender identity is, like, the most oppressed. And whenever that kind of Mm. discourse came up, these people were, you know, furious. So... Um, I'm, I have, I'm after, you know, getting, uh, mass dunked on for a week, as I discussed on my Patreon last episode, but, like, after, you know, the whole thing happened, uh, and I had people taking screenshots of my account, asking people why, uh, they follow me, the whole thing is, uh, stupid, nightmarish nonsense that I am not behind because I don't, like, you know, cancellation. Like, I, I thought we were all kind of behind the same idea that that kind of pile-on is retarded. But, uh, alas, uh, the human drive to be a catty little girl never, ever seems to fade, yeah. despite how based or red pony. Well, I think, I think some of these people, like, at least in my case, sort of, like, severely overestimated my investment in, like, being in their club. Oh, yeah, because if they think I care at all, they're so fucking wrong. Like, the the boundaries of, like, what I care about are very small. And it's, like, um, like, women who inspire, like, a divine camp element in me. So, like, uh, that, and then my drag, and then beautiful men. And that's, like, about as far as my, like, interests go. So if someone thinks that they're going to, like, drag me over the coals for, like, not being red-pilled enough or something like they can literally go to my punishment park Goodbye. yeah i mean it was like you know like someone was like oh, you know you can't be in like the right wing anymore or something i'm, I'm like i mean okay great oh, okay. whatever <laughs> <laughs> you know like i don't remember ever saying that i was like um but i don't know i mean i feel like almost like literally everybody i have some kind of effect uh, affection or respect for um kind of what like seemed to sort of take my side in that in that one so i don't feel particularly worried about it no no i'm not i'm not worried at all i i feel excuse me i feel like um more empowered about like my little lonely gay misery journey into the (laughs) burrows of art to combine trash and high culture to create a new universe i've never been more convinced in my entire life that what i'm doing is necessary and important (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I just think, I don't, like, uh, who who else is coming up with such, like, insightful and interesting juxtapositions as, like, Gundam and Siegfried Sassoon? I'm gonna tell you, it's no one. (laughs) (laughs) I'll be be self-centered for one moment and say I'm the first person to make the No, that's genius. I can't, I mean, I can't wait to listen to that. Like, um... That's very sweet of you. Um... 
but but you know, I I brought you on specifically because I think our um worldview aligns so clearly. And um, when we first started talking about you know potentially doing an episode together, you suggested that we do Furbank, who I had never read, and um, to. I have spent this past week um, just learning as much about him as possible and reading everything I could, and I am utterly riveted with this person. Um, Ronald Furbank was born in 1886. He died in 1926, Uh, so he's right in the era of the English authors I've been talking about recently, but Mm. inspired by the aesthetic scene of uh, the late... A 20th century or early 20th century London aesthetic scene and Oscar Wilde. He uh, put together these beautiful books of uh, manners that are so like collected and so intense and so uh, beautiful and shimmering. I have never read anything like it. And I'm so glad you introduced him to me. But um, before we talk a little bit about the book, I- I'm curious, like, where did your love for Furbank come from? Um, I, I'm really like, uh, like happy to talk about that, uh, because it's kind of like an unexpected route because when I, when I was a teenager, I was like working my way through all the kind of, um, I guess like there's a sort of like basic kind of like teenage, uh, countercultural canon, right. Of like, um, like William Burroughs and Hunter S. Thompson and things like that, you know, like you just like seek out. I don't know, like, when I was a teenager, I was obsessed with, like, Dada and surrealism and post-punk music and stuff. So I was just, like, just kind of searching through this, like, lineage of, you know, like, J.G. Ballard, people like that. Um, And then that brought me to, like, the new wave of science fiction writers in the 60s, who was these London-based writers who were kind of... um, There was this, like, sci-fi magazine called New Worlds, but they were kind of incorporating these like modernist and postmodernists uh, literary techniques into it. They were like exploring psychology and drug use and sexuality and all this kind of stuff. And then all the American like kind of, um, you know, basics like sci-fi writers really hated them. So it was, it was kind of like a sort of like proto gamer game almost, except mm. um, the people who were getting political were actually talented. um so yeah like so i I, i've always been like a really big fan of michael moorcock right who he was this kind of guy who wrote these like oh he's still around but he's he's quite old now he wrote uh, he created the character elric who was supposed to be like a kind of anti-conan the barbarian like where conan the barbarian was this kind of like bap-esque like bronzed muscled figure with like endless vitality um and like elric was like a sickly albino who has this he has this like a uh, sword called uh stormbringer that like you know um it, like sucks souls from people it kills and that's what gives him his vitality so he's almost like a kind of drug addict so it was this kind of like sword and sorcery take on like these like fantasy Eckler, like decadent themes that um, he was interested in. But it's also just like great pulp kind of sword and sorcery stuff. And I've always kind of liked that stuff. Um, But basically they were, they were all like huge Furbank fans. And. Oh, interesting. So I was like really, 
as I kind of got older and I started like searching through their influences, they would bring me onto these really like fascinating kind of unknown writers, like in the, um, in the, I guess like maybe 50s or, so, or something like that. There was this writer who did like children's historical fiction called Henry Treist. And he was really, really popular at the time, but he's completely forgotten now. Um, but, you know, he's a, he was really, really wonderful. And I found out a lot about, uh, about a lot of these figures from, um, there's this like small independent publishing press in, I think, Manchester called Savoy Books, who are well known because they produced one of the last books to be banned in England in the 90s, oh, cool. which is David Britton's Lord Horror. And David Britton was one of the, he's one of the, people who uh runs he might have died now actually but he ran he helped run savoy books and they had a very interesting kind of like eclectic i think they like will run out of a science fiction and fantasy bookshop in manchester um but they basically published a lot of like really obscure stuff uh like a writer called jack trevor story who no one remembers now either um mm -hmm. and uh, also, a really wonderful book called The Exploits of Engelbrecht by a guy called Maurice Rich Richardson, which are it's, it's a collection of short stories concerning the adventures of a surrealist sportsman called Engelbrecht. Oh, beautiful. And, you know, so like every, every story will be like, you know, he uh, he goes like witch hunting, like duck shooting, but with, with witches. Or he like, uh, he has a boxing match with time in one of the episodes represented by a grandfather clock. Um, gorgeous. I'm obsessed with that image. Yeah. So like, and Lord Horror as well is like, the reason it was banned is because it's basically this kind of strange, like surrealist, um, like, uh, it's all based on this like traitorous, uh, like British broadcaster uh, from World War Two, called Lord. He was popularly known as Lord Hawhaw. I can't remember his actual name. But he basically <laughs> did these like propaganda broadcasts for the Nazis. So Lord Horror is like this kind of grotesquely fictionalized version of him, and it's just like this novel is absolutely like seething with like just these surreal depictions of like extreme violence against Jewish people. Um, in in a kind of like a kind of swiftian satirical way um it's like a really bizarre novel like no one no one's heard of it um i don't actually you know it's not actually like anti-semitic um it's just this kind of like surreal like um exploration of like british fascism i guess like right via this kind of uh, the medium of this figure so anyway, sorry, that's a really, really long digression. But basically, like, Furbank was kind of one of these, like, figures in this constellation of, like, unknown writers. And at the time I got into him, I was obsessed with, like, seeking these people out and, and like, reading them. And I just wanted to, like, I guess as well, because I was so kind of, like, disgusted with like everything that was around me culturally at the time i just wanted to bury myself in like things that were obscure and unknown and sort of furnish my own world out of them no i totally get that impulse i i have always felt exactly the same way um and then you know then a week later i'm you know horrified to discover that actually everyone's been talking about it and i just had no yeah. idea like um I thought I was the only person on earth who had read Henry Miller when I first read yeah, uh, right. the Rosie Crucifixion, but there is like something 
special about fostering kind of a rebellious artistic attitude where you are a deliberate contrarian and intentionally going out of your way to experience things that other people are unfamiliar with and um even though for me it's like always ended with stuff that like literally everyone else like knows about and unless it's like Japanese I'm like my taste is like pretty basic for the most part but um for me I think like that kind of contrarian uh dig deep into the unknown world uh impulse like led me to all of these gay authors when I was uh, first getting exposed to them in early college and yeah, uh, reading right. Larry Kramer and Holleran and then uh, finally Hollinghurst for the first time. It feels like a, a really beautiful synchronicity that like uh, Furbank was one of your like uh, only I know this finds. And then oh, yeah, for me yeah. was, uh, was the swimming pool library, which of course is quite popular, but uh, it's also very, you know, focused on Furbank and his uh, writing. So it's very charming to me that over like uh, an entire ocean and expanses of time, we were like both reaching towards the same author through our little yeah. personal drives. Very well, cute. I was going to say like, I mean, the, the irony of like, um, you know, like the search for obscurity, right. Is, is like when you actually arrive at the most obscure thing that like actually literally no one has heard of it and people haven't been talking about it at all uh-huh. anywhere. You're just kind of like, you, you know you're like a dog that has like uh you know finally caught his tail or something you're just like <laughs> what <laughs> I, I don't have anyone to talk about this with <laughs> like... <laughs> yeah so then you have to i mean and then you have to force it on other people i yeah. mean if you ever can then you have to bring like um one of my favorite movies of all time is private lessons 2 which is a uh japanese unofficial sequel to an 80s american movie called private lessons um that barely anyone has heard of anyway. So, like, mm. uh, when I introduce that movie to people, they are all, like, uh, enraptured and, like, filled with life. But, like, nobody knows about it. It can't even be oh, legally so, purchased. It's so you know, like that kind of thing happens. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. it is. So I, I'm glad that we, like, we're both pillaging into the ancient pieces of um, 20th century English history because, um, wow, I mean... When I was reading Furbank, I, I sat in one sitting at the park today with um, a few pastries and a bag of chips and uh, two lemon sours, and I read um, the whole of the book in one sitting. I was just blown away. I have never read anything quite like this. It is such a special and uniquely inspiring novel. I can't believe it's so short and yet feels like it's... Uh, packed with <laughs> cosmos of information um we're talking about vainglory which i believe is his first novel he published in 1915 well um, he has some kind of like complicated publishing history that i i cannot for the life of me remember the details of where there's all this kind of like ephemera and stuff you know that he got published and i think he may mm-hmm. have he may have like published an, uh, a novel before that he later then revised um, so I'm not sure it counts, but I think Vainglory is the first one he published under the name Ronald Furbank. Oh, wonderful. So this is like, I mean, I love the idea that he has like a bunch of like, uh, like Datrius and like trash floating around him. Cause you know, I yeah. always imagine like my literary career and it's like, oh, the first publication is an apocalypse confidential, like this like obscure, like, you know, net magazine. So I love that, uh, even back then he was, uh, unclear on like what was uh, published or not but uh, okay can you give like a brief summary 
of vainglory. <laughs> like, what? what is this book? Can you say it in, like, two sentences? I mean... I don't think I'm, I can. I'm going to defer to the, uh, the little, like, um, blurb on the back of my, like, Penguin Classics copy, because I think it's very, like... It's very funny, and it's very, like, in the spirit of his writing. Uh, but this is, like, what they describe as the plot. <laughs> um... <laughs> The fairly young and entirely alive Mrs. Shamefoot wants nothing more than to have a memorial stained glass window erected in her honour in an English cathedral. Perfect. And that's that's what it's about. That is, I mean, like, <laughs> then beyond that, it's sort of like, I mean, it kind of, like, disintegrates in a way into these, these like, impossible to follow, like, um sort of social gatherings between the different characters who are all to kind of like greater or lesser degrees pretty interchangeable um and you know you could just like excise huge pieces of like the different chapters and rearrange them into other chapters and you'd never know like you'd never really know the difference um i know for me like i feel like even though it's nothing really to do with the plot, the whole like centerpiece of the thing for me is like, is actually chapter two, which is um, the, this, this, this kind of like party scene that one of the oh, characters. Good. That, this is also the scene that really motivated me the most. I'm, I'm glad yeah. it's the same for you. Yeah. I think in a way it's like, that is sort of my favorite chapter in it. And I think it's like a completely like, perfect exemplary example like a exemplary example um it's a perfect like passage of furbank really like to introduce people to him with um and that is all about i think is it mrs hennedge who has arranged a party to uh like display a fragment of a line by sappho or sappho i'm not sure how to say uh, and so she has this like Professor Inglepin come down with like the fragment on a piece of paper to read. And she's like arranged all these chairs and stuff. And it, it's it basically all, all the kind of characters who'll then like show up throughout the book um, are kind of introduced in this scene. There's this like really just kind of like wonderful series of cameos from all these like strangely named characters who have, uh, you know, like Furbank has this like great, he's one of these like people who is great at coming up with these like character names that like strike this note of absurdity um so you have like mrs compostella and mrs asp and uh <laughs> mrs shamefoot you know uh, mrs wookie um and they're all they're all kind of like introduced uh with these like wonderful descriptions of them um and i don't know actually the, there was a piece by furbank on uh, by Hollinghurst, which I quoted in my uh, my dissertation, where he basically says that like uh, he he has this kind of technique of like capturing the atmosphere of a party as if like the narrative is kind of like a microphone, you know, like moving yeah. around and, and just capturing these like overlapping fragments of conversation and stray lines and so on. No, that's, I mean, the, the way that that's described is perfect because, like, the, the bulk of this book is, like, um, the narrative itself is eavesdropping on these conversations and um, they're punctuated with these uh, tiny pieces of descriptions of the setting and, like, precise 
furniture and china and dishware and sunsets and these small sensory details that kind of interlude between um, these completely incomprehensible in terms of who's talking or what they're talking about scenes of people um, just speaking. And it creates like this human impression that is so special. Like, um, I don't know what was going on, uh, but I was like moved to tears a few times reading this. Oh, it's no, a com- it's, it's, yeah. It's a comic novel, but it it feels very rapturous to see the the. Sp- human spirit captured in this really particular way yeah so there's this thing about Furbank which is he has I mean amongst the people who you know who know him which isn't isn't very many he has this like reputation for you know concerning himself with like triviality you know in that kind of like Wildean way of like you know this is just it's all like very superficial it's all like um you know it's it's sort of all the characters are like aesthetes or whatever. No one is ever describing mm-hmm. anything of, no one's ever discussing anything of substance. Um, but then there are these kind of like, I feel like there are these like deep currents of emotion underneath that of like sadness and yearning. Absolutely. Um, and they occasionally just sort of like, there are a few, like I, I feel, I feel deeply moving moments in this, like really beautiful moments of description that are like, simultaneously very humorous but also like so dignified you know like the the sort of like the dignity that's afforded to the the characters even in these moments of utter absurdity right where there's like something ridiculous about their behavior but at the same time it's like um it, it i don't know it like he has so much sort of like respect for them not in spite of, but almost, like, because of their absurdity. Yeah, because all of these characters are, like, given the most, like, abhorrent names you've ever heard, like, ever heard. It's, like, Mrs. Wookie is... is yeah. <laughs> it's so... It's, like, all of these people who are, like, kind of uh, behaving in a way that you would imagine the author would immediately try to, like, v- um, vilify them or make them some kind of um, piece of satire... Uh, in the distance of the book, there's like these three sisters laughing at everything. The Chalfonts. Um, oh, cool. right, the Chalfonts. Yeah. <laughs> I love them because they feel like kind of like the author almost. It's like kind of like a, this authorial insert or like a, the reader like suddenly coming into the text to be like cackling in the background. But despite of all of these um, people and they're like fabulously trite conversations. I mean, so trite and about so much immateriality that it would, you know, probably be caused to pester most people. But the way he writes the scenes and because of that undercurrent of emotion you mentioned, you feel like you're getting this uh, almost like harsh light depiction of reality that's uh, so stunningly beautiful and fully felt that I... I've never read anything like this before, honestly. Yeah, I mean, um, it, no, it, it's. Oh, what was I gonna say? Like, it. I, oh yeah, it, it, it's worth saying that I think like his novels are basically they're kind of mostly populated by this like very kind of um, like marginal type of character, which is like uh, just kind of spinsters and widows and like but mostly women there are like very few men in the novel there are like one or two 
um, who, who are kind of like in this, um, you know, like Edenic pastoral sort of English country life that at the same time has very, very little going on, basically. Absolutely. <laughs> like, they all have like very, very little to occupy them. I mean, they're not like, when I say marginal, I don't mean to invoke this kind of identity politics thing because you couldn't call them depressed. They're all like extremely uh, well off, you know, like in, in, implicitly. Um, this is like a kind of like a, a sort of upper middle to upper class kind of like novel, basically. But um you know i mean and i think it's it's fair to say that there's a sort of like um implication of like repressed lesbianism going on a lot but it's so sort of like um you know at, at the same time you don't want to like you know i i feel like you don't want to make too much of this whole thing about like all oh, the characters are so like repressed or whatever because I've, I mean, first of all, I think one of the sort of themes of Furbank in a way is like, uh, is discretion. And, you know, something, something I touched on in my dissertation, which I still sort of feel strongly is that e even though his characters are very silly, his like respect for them extends to mm -hmm. sort of giving them this discretion, you know, like allowing them it, um, where it's like, and also almost kind of exclusion, like as a reader, you're excluded from the, basically from every conversation you read in this, you're reading it as if you're kind of overhearing it and you just always lack context for any given sentence in an exchange. There's this, right. there's this enormous amount of context that's being evoked. There are things being alluded to, and it's almost like, uh, the the sort of like meaning of the sentences is is kind of irrelevant and it's like actually this texture of exclusion and of of like eavesdropping that's created by you reading it you know yeah because i mean the thing that kept striking me about this is that despite the fact that the interior world of almost all these characters is completely like locked away in some velvety closet like i don't like need to care about if they're like secretly lesbians or like what's going on beyond because i think like furbank really cares about the superficiality of their interactions and um these like petite kind of obnoxious conversations he looks at them and he sees like a deep humanism in like these uh really kind of refracted and shallow machinations of conversation like the way they talk to each other and navigate and like the awkwardness of it sometimes as well as like the sudden strikes of total articulation like he mm. cares so much about that like utmost layer of superficiality that constructs like the world we live in it's like all of these people just talking about bullshit to each other but it's so beautiful to see him give it so much respect and attention yeah there's a, a really good quote which i you know um can't remember <laughs> who said it typically but it's i think it's from the introduction to the edition i have but someone basically said of you know that he was one of the first writers to notice that people kind of rarely actually listen to one another in conversations yes. and and you know and are mostly just trying to sort of advertise their own cleverness or like culturedness um so i mean the other thing is and this is very in keeping with the sort of uh you know lineage of like 
decadence and fin de siècle and aestheticism and stuff. But all the characters are like um, sort of obsessed with like, they have this like orientalist obsession with like archaeology and um, and like uh, art history, you know? And like, so there are just these kind of frequent allusions to um, to like painters, artists, like uh vases you know uh yeah. like stray pieces of like mythology and poetry and stuff uh, but it, but never in a way that like suggests the character who's invoking this this like piece of cultural authority has like the faintest idea <laughs> of, like, <laughs> like, what, it, what it actually like consists of or that they've had any real acquaintance with it um there's a very like funny throwaway bit where like i think uh one of the characters like nannies shows up with a small kind of entourage of children and it says that they've just got back from learning comportment by studying the tanagras at the british museum mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um and so i just like i and all of it is so absurd but like he cares so much about these people and their their, their private silly little reality doesn't he absolutely yeah i mean there's a one of my like I'm just gonna. I just open the page at random and come across another bit I want to quote. But, um, but there's a there's one particular line in this that just I think is like one of the most moving passages I've ever read in a book. Let me see if I can find it. I think it's. I think is it Mrs. Compostella who's the actress? I, I don't ask me. I find I it so hard. A single character in yeah. this. I can only name one character off of memory because everyone bleeds together with their. Uh, little social chatter um yeah you can very there is a, yeah you can very faintly distinguish between the characters in that they, they've all been kind of like assigned different professions so there's like maybe right. two actresses there's an illustrator there's a biographer um i think mrs asp is the biographer and she's actually referenced um by james at one point in the swimming pool library and I was very, I got very excited when I was able to like, I was like, Mrs. Asp, I know who that is. Um, but this is a bit about like uh, Miss Miss Compostella, who is an actress, not Mrs. Compostella, Miss Compostella, because she's she is a single woman, like many of these um, characters. And she basically lives with um, her Shakespeare loving um, like maid, who's called Sumpf. Um <laughs> And I think she's just like finished a, uh, oh my God, this is like so quotable. She, because, <laughs> uh, yeah, like, so I think maybe she's just finished like a, a theatrical run or something. So she has this stretch of time ahead of her, but she's going to not be doing anything. And so there's this, this paragraph here, which is, it's actually two paragraphs, but it begins with five weeks at her disposal, with the exception of a complacent visit to Stockingham for a race party. It was her intention to lie absolutely still preferably at a short distance from London, and explore her heart. For indeed, the dread of Miss Compostella's life was that she had not got one. Unless that sorrowful, soft, vague, yearning, aching, melting, kite-like, soaring emotion was a heart, could that be a heart? Oh, oh my God. beautiful. Oh, I, there were so many because you know that's one of the things about like the um, dulcet like t- um, 
like tutu texture like you know it's like yes. it's like a whole bunch yeah. of like tool right it's like a whole bunch of like pink lacy tool when they're talking but then like suddenly the wind sweeps it away and you hear something like that and you know to make my kind of like big thesis statement about this and it's been something i've been thinking about a lot this week is that the reason that Furbank can see this so clearly and then realize it in this elegant perfection in his fiction is because he is a homosexual. And it's because he interacts with the world where he sees every single interaction from this like pained distance as he's like yes, looking at the yeah. sad little relations of these widows and single women and dissatisfied wives. He looks at them from this like tragic distance and he can see this like a uh, infinite grid of longing immediately beyond the frame. Yes. Ex- yeah, exactly. No, it's like this, just this intense, like, uh, like lattice work of, society you know and then there is just like there's just this intense like wistfulness uh beyond that you know that's right and i think that like no one else no other a straight person can never like create this novel in the way he did and the structure of the book i think that kind of from what you quoted in your dissertation it seems that hollinghurst was pointing to this as well but the kind of structure of the book is, like, establishing its own cathedral. It's, like, made out of all of these kind of broken stone pieces that are very, you know, awkward and superficial, but they come together into this, um, you know, erection of, of true <laughs> beauty and humanity, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, is that, you know, one of the, like, the sort of comparisons that people tend to go to for uh describing his prose uh, uh furbanks that is is like mosaic tile because it's mm-hmm. all like made up of, uh, of these kind of fragments that have sort of been like stacked on top of each other um but then the other thing that people always describe his prose as is being kind of like gauze or silk or like a curtain you know because there's this kind of like wonderful like swaying flow to it it doesn't it doesn't come across as very like hard edged to me, you know? No, no, not at all. But yet at the end of the novel, like you leave it and it leaves such a serious impression. And I just saw the elephant man by David Lynch in theaters yesterday, which has like a lot oh, of like, right. Yeah. It has a lot of cathedral imagery. And it's like, I, I like that one black and white shot of the cathedral as he's like reconstructing it. It feels the same way to me when I leave the book. Yeah. The, the only movie of his that's like set in England and uh, but it has this kind of like I always think there's a kind of um, I use the word very negatively or, or critically on Twitter all the time but I use it uh, with reference to Lynch in a positive sense like I think there's a kind of like wonderful kind of sentimentality to his movies that is often overlooked and I think the Elephant Man is like a really wonderful example of that no, he, I think he's totally sentimental. And, like, um, I was uh, completely ruined by the Elephant Man yesterday. I, like, started crying, like, um, five or t- 15 minutes in, and it just, like, got worse throughout the whole movie. And, like, my boyfriend was oh, very it's, concerned after. heartbreaking. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's very upsetting, honestly. And, like, I don't know what it was about this, but I was very upset about this as well. And it might just be because I was um, sitting in the park 
surrounded by like um little children as they were like going down the slides and I was just you know privately having my little drink and I was reading passages like there, there's one I wanted to read um and it's from quite near the end of the novel but uh oh sure yeah please please do yeah I think this is um Mrs. Shamefoot who's who's saying this but it reads I like to sit in the window and watch the moon rise until the brass weathercock on the belfry turns slowly silver above the trees or in the early dawn, perhaps, when it rains and the whole world seems so melancholy and desolate and personal and quite intensely sad and life an utter hoax. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's, it's, just, it's just, like, astonishing. It's, like... It um, is astonishing. Yeah. It's... And, you know, but it's, like, at the same time, you know, they're not, like... I mean, one of the things that I remember really striking me when... I first read this was I was really just beginning to develop um, it, it like it was really like the start of the kind of things that I talk about on Twitter now a lot really like which is like the influence of social media on people and um, you know this kind of like uh, I guess what is now I feel like a sort of pop culture like mythology of like repression and the idea that no one is allowed to like you know, like this idea of like everybody should be themselves and social media is this kind of transparent window through which you can like reveal your personality, you know. And so I was first beginning to think about that kind of thing critically um, when I was reading Furbank and there was this kind of like, um, the, one of the things I noticed was that first of all, there's this like irony that all these characters are kind of, in a way they are like repressed but actually what they kind of when they then sort of turn in upon themselves what the actual interior is this kind of like um beautiful like silence you know yeah that is what's beautiful here it's like the spaces in between all the chatter because like they're speaking with one another implies like the great silence immediately beyond them and I think that's like kind of what's like beautiful about the podcasting medium as well is like, um, you know, we're saying everything possible to each other right now and like reaching for these like great ideas of life on earth and the importance of the relation to the other and homosexuality. But like um, the, the truth of it all is always just like immediately like beyond reach. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's just like it's it's also just sort of striking to me that like you know, now I feel like uh, the the sort of like the, the actual like repression of our times is like is almost through like oversharing and saying too much. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's a kind of like um, a like an in, unspoken injunction to share. You know, that's like it's, it's, it's sort of like a kind of like what is um, what's that like old quote that people say? It's like whatever is not forbidden is compulsory hmm um and but then it, you know I, again there's just this like kind of like contrast in in Furbank where like the characters are like uh really like barely barely saying anything and are just like so kind of like discreet and I mean obviously that's kind of like a a sort of reflection of of like sort of social pressures at the time you know and so I'm not saying it's like a, it's like a kind of a good thing, 
I think um, I might be saying it's a good thing because if I was just like, <laughs> if I was just like sitting around and like pittering with my friends about Sappho all day, <laughs> I would live. Are you kidding? Like I like to make my little show. I had to like run away from like talking about I don't even know what it is with my normal friends, and like, <laughs> like I'm intentionally crafting a space where I can pitter away about forgotten gay writers from 1915. Like, I would love to live in this little dulcet world that he inhabits. Yeah, I the um the the I think the like line of Sappho is like one of the funniest moments in the book actually, um, because I think I can't remember what it is exactly. It's something like really. And then they like they they quote a bunch of other lines, which I think are made up. Um, I didn't that? know that. That's... I, I'm I'm assuming that he made them all up, or maybe that maybe not, because there well, there's one I... that's quoted that's like with water dripped the napkin. <laughs> that certainly could not. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, so the actual, the, the like, I think this fictional fragment that's discovered uh, is could not for the fury of her feet. Um, to which one of the characters immediately replies, do you mean she ran away? <laughs> <laughs> I just love every like word that's written here. Like, um, I can't wait to read this again. I wish I had been able to read it twice before today, but... Um, I'm going to do a rapid fire of stuff that just set me off. Uh, quote, if we were all a part of God, she says, then God must indeed be horrible. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. So that's like, that's, um, a, is it like Mrs. Cresswell who says that? It's, it's like quoted by one of the other characters, isn't it? I, that's correct. Yeah. But I, I thought that was extremely moving, especially in the in the context of having someone enshrined in a cathedral. And then um, I think this might be one of the more famous quotes from the book, but um, the world is disgracefully managed. One hardly knows whom to complain. Whom to complain, yeah. <laughs> this is I, would really... I, I want to fucking complain. Like, <laughs> I don't know. I just, every sentence, despite the fact they're being so, like, superficial, like, you know, pink napkin with a little cat printed on it. I just like everything they say hits home. This is, I mean, I'm just like opening the pages at random, you know, and it's just like it's so absurdly like quotable. Like she spoke to him of Greece, but all he could remember of Corinth, for instance, was the many drowned lambs he had seen lying upon the beach. <laughs> Uh, what is one to do with a person she demanded who cannot feel the spell of a beautiful supreme thing like Tintoretto's crucifixion <laughs> I feel the same way like every single time I encounter a piece of art it's insane but um, the last quote I want to read from this is a longer one but I, I feel like it, it gives a really beautiful kind of final summation for the book um, I'm wondering if, if it's you have the a... same the same one that I want to quote. We might be like converging on the same quote. It could be. We'll, it could we'll, happen. We'll let, let me give it a whirl. Yeah. Let's see. Okay. Those demons, imps, fiends, and fairies with horns like stalactites and indignant scurrying angels and virgins, trampling horrors beneath their firm and mysterious feet, and the winged lion of Mark and the winged ox of Luke and the rose and tears of things, and skied above the cavernous deep doors were part of her escort now, and within elusive, brittle, responsive to every mood and every minute and every year improving. <gasps> Oh yeah, that's I read that this morning and I considered I considered like marking it out especially. 
I mean, because <laughs> all of these, you know, dumb little napkin conversations or all of these fantastic mythic creatures created over generations of ancestry into this uh, beautiful climax of didactic language. Yes. Yeah. Um, I want to know what that... quote you had as your big one. So the, my big quote is, and this is like, this is kind of pertains to the sort of loose plot of the novel. Um, and this is during the party scene and it's, it's Miss Shame, Mrs. Shamefoot um, sort of contemplating her, her stained glass window that she wants to erect. Um, and this is just in the context of like this, you know, these like tedious conversations that are going on. Uh, in none of these disturbances did Mrs. Shamefoot care to join. Mentally, perhaps, she was already three parts glass. So intense was her desire to set up a commemorative window to herself that when it was erected, she believed she must leave behind in it forever a little ghost. And should this be so, then what joy to be pierced each morning with light, her body flooded through and through by the sun, or in the evening to glow with a harvest of dark colours, deepening into untold sadness with the night. What ecstasy. It was the Egyptian sighing for his pyramid, of course. What ecstasy. Ah. Oh. I actually highlighted that as well because that was the other passage I was thinking of reading. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I think I think between us we've uh, we've we've done a good job. Um, but that's like I mean that's an astonishing passage, and I don't I don't oh, want it's to like astonishing. I don't want to say anything about it. I want to no, leave it right there. Yeah, yeah, that's probably wise. Alan Hollinghurst is an author who has uh, followed me since my freshman year of college after I first read The Spell. I read it on a library loan, and it was a part of my great research initiative to understand gay sexuality 
And I think The Swimming Pool Library, which we're speaking about today, was the second novel I read from him. And it's his debut novel, a pretty slim book describing the cruising scene of mid-80s London uh, from the perspective of a very well-to-do young man. And <laughs> what's always really struck me about this 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 novel is how perfectly it locates a lot of the ecstasies of uh, gay reality through this um, very artistic and kind of curtainy uh, lens of artistry it's kind of hard to talk about but i think you know what i mean right yeah absolutely yeah well it's 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 kind of interesting to read in conjunction with furbank because there's obviously such like a kind of uh i mean it references like furbank a lot um and he's a kind of like i feel like furbank is almost like a sort of uh like thematic beat you know who like surfaces in the novel occasionally as a kind of like uh sort of signpost um but at at the same time they're interesting to read in contrast because as we've been discussing Furbank is like all about kind of like discretion and illusion um and hinting at things and sort of this like elaborate emotional semaphore um whereas uh the swimming pool library is like fairly like frank and matter of fact about like the realities of of like gay sex and cruising and things like that Mm -hmm. yeah it's interesting because they definitely are doing a similar kind of work even though they do it in completely different ways where like furbank is using these like loose conversations and uh shimmering memories to communicate this um beautiful human drive but the opposite is the swimming pool library where it is these very extreme and upfront depictions of cruising, hand jobs, anal, piss play. Basically everything is on display here. But... <laughs> I remember that bit like very vividly. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> but they kind of like have like the same like tenor because um I think that like Hollinghurst in this novel approaches the act of gay sex in the same way that, like, Furbank approaches conversation. Right, okay, yeah, that's really interesting. Because it's, like, these, like, gross, kind of abject, yucky images. Um, They're very unflattering a lot of the time, and the protagonist and narrator, William Beckwith, is, like, kind of a deplorable person um but like despite (laughs) all of it and (laughs) despite like uh all of the harshness of the imagery i feel like hollinghurst like approaches the sexuality and interactions between men in, in, in a similar way um that furbank does to gross conversations about nothing that these people in his work do yeah well i don't know like i maybe this is like too um too like elaborate kind of conceit but i just i don't know such thing on this show i (laughs) (laughs) but i like i wonder if you know you could like make the argument that like what in in furbank is like um is conversational in the swing pool library is like spatial you know like Mm -hmm. um where there are these like kind of sexual encounters that are just sort of like distributed across like what in Furbank are like discrete sentences in in like 80s the like 
80s gay London scene are kind of like discrete spaces. No, that's exactly right. Because um, despite the fact that this book is like so open about like the cruising and everything, it is always conducted with this like air of privacy. There's always like one single veil that kind of uh, separates it from the rest of the world. And it appears very soft and beautiful and like kind of Eden-esque at the beginning of the novel. And of course that eventually um, begins to degrade, but especially like in like these like first like 200 pages, it's just like nothing but like these like silky abstracted other worlds of gay sex, like confined to toilets and uh, messy semen tissue stained apartments and uh bus stops (laughs) (laughs) like i mean the scope of this is just incredible i don't even know where to begin honestly well he's he it seems like like there's this kind of thing that he's like he says at various times that he's like refined his social life down or like whittled it down to basically what seems to be like a series of rooms that he kind of like alternates between that's Um, right um, and then he'll go go for the occasional walk in like a park or something. Um, yeah, and then encounter uh, his like his uh, child cousin. <laughs> so... Yeah, Roots, who's very That's sweet. Right. Yeah, and very sweet. But it is like all of these like big empty hollow spaces. I mean, the kind of like uh, titular eponymous setting of this is the uh, the Cory, the Corinthian Club. It's like this. Uh, gay exercise um f- w- there, sorry there's a word for this what is it called it's like a, it's like like a, a men's gym, but not club white. or something cool like yeah a, it's like something yeah. like that like a leisure center like, something like that yeah it's like they half of the book takes place in this uh really like sensual like a uh, very beautifully described like grecian exercise fitness men club ymca kind of thing where the men go swimming and take showers and lift weights and um it's like that setting and then like the movie theater the cum stained apartment and it's just like these interstitials of rooms that's the kind of like the interstitials of conversations and for yeah i mean it it begins kind of like with his he's like seeing this um this like working class black guy called arthur and they they kind of end up sort of like um Arthur like believes that he he has killed one of his brother's friends at one point and so they kind of like hole up into um Will's like apartment and you know they have like the curtains drawn all the time and then inside they have this kind of like weird slightly like claustrophobic and intimate domesticity um so there's that that that's that kind of like and then you know there's that kind of like strange boundary with the outside world where <laughs> they're always like this is just very early on but they're like always worried about sirens and things like that <laughs> this is like sort of uh like ambient paranoia you know that is sort of like hinges on the boundary between his um his like apartment and the outside world yeah and, and then, like, i mean they're Arthur just kind of is like stuck there as well he like never goes out for a while yeah, and then he comes home and he's like, oh, I was just watching Teddy. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, there's, um, I don't know, there's, like, something so fascinating about, like, the, I'm glad that like, we're talking about this, like, the delineation of, like, 
sorry, space, like, you know, spaces. It's <laughs> The liminal spaces. <laughs> yeah, the liminal space. But, I mean, it is so fascinating to, like, be in, like, these rooms. And, um, hall, like, uh, sorry, I'm not going to say Holleran, even though I keep, my mouth keeps itching to do it. Hollinghurst, like, has a, a really ornate, beautiful way of describing, like, architecture and uh, the movement of light in rooms, like, they're yeah. sitting there, like, jerking off together, and then, like, the shadow shifts suddenly. And, oh, my God, it's transcendent. Yeah, it's um, it's really, like, I think one of the sort of, um, I don't know, like, almost unintentional effects of it on me was I, I just really enjoyed it as, like, a London novel as well. Like, a lot of the mm-hmm. sort of, uh, like, landmarks um, are, were, like, very familiar to me. Not as uh, cruising spots, um, I have to admit, but <laughs> but like <laughs> the descriptions of like the tube and things like that, you know, it's it's like very familiar territory to me. So oh my uh, god, I almost had a heart attack reading the sequence of him on the tube as it is. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because he, yeah, yeah. He is describing this like total mesh of people, everyone pushed together where you can only scrap together bare details of other men and uh, you're suddenly exposed to this high contrast of like the blue collar beautiful men and the very like well prepped uh, white collar men as well and I experience this literally every single fucking day that I'm on the Oedo line going to work and it it feels like something that I've only ever experienced and when I read him going through like the details of like men's shirt sleeves and collars and how they adjust themselves on the train like I almost screamed reading it. Yeah it's like it's kind of fascinating to read actually his like descriptions of just encounters with random people or even his just like uh his like uh like watching other people you know in the street observation general like observations of them and stuff because it's also like um pregnant with with like you know like you you get a sense of like this this uh way of life that's extremely like sensitized to like the, the most subtle kind of signals and social cues that like promise sex um and then like that kind of almost like a, a kind of forms like the the matrix of like his interactions with the the rest of the world in a way right it's like um i don't know like, like, see yeah. like he, he described it to you so perfectly because what you just said is exactly in my daily experience whenever i leave my fucking right. house <laughs> like yeah, yeah that's what's so amazing to me is that hollinghurst is like so articulate and his language is so beautiful that like he can um take these enormous feelings of like getting horny on the bus basically and like shrink it down into something that like uh trespasses like all borders of of sexuality and actually um i did a little bit of like a redditing which i like to do (laughs) uh, about these uh books and movies i talk about just to see what people think yeah, and yeah. the only mention of this book is on the um, straight men writing bad sex 
subreddit and it was somebody being like oh this is the inverse like right right and it was people criticizing him for like describing like the chinese dick shape and like the pubic hair <laughs> bush and the uh that's great well, I, I thought that was fantastic i, really, I thought so too he like yeah, yeah. described it a cock as like radically circumcised and i don't know about you but i saw that right away yeah but people, um... but people shut that <laughs> off no that's great like i don't know i think people have this like this like Lovecraftian like horror of um, descriptions of like bodies in like intimate detail, you know. But like I, I mean, um, like even like I guess you know I, I I may as well say like I'm as far as I'm aware or as far as like the reaches of my experience uh, extend. Oh, honey, I'm, we know you don't even have yeah. to say it. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. But like, you know, it's like I find it like refreshing to read that stuff, you know, because it's like it's such a kind of fundamentally like human thing and i think so too it's you know it's like refreshing to read it described with such like frankness you know oh i'm so okay when i was you know talking thinking about talking about this book with you uh i think that this is one of the most abject pieces of gay art i've ever exposed anyone to on my podcast like this and it's like my horsewoman dog episode where i made someone watch like uh two gay porn movies like in a bestiality film this is like right up there with it and it just elates me to no end that it's like you're reading these uh descriptions of like uh william beckworth just like observing men in the passing sunlight and you can still like feel something too yeah well of course i mean it's like i mean it's it's like definitely like a very like erotic novel i think like um it's very like I don't know. It, it like deals with these things with so much like subtlety. And I, I actually like made a post on Twitter about it. Cause I came across this like kind of funny post that somebody had made where it was like one of these, like almost like 4chan style, like green text kind of posts that was uh-huh. like about like, basically just, it was like a little piece of like pornographic humorous fantasy. Right. Which is like really what, what that kind of writing is a lot of the time. It was like, you know, um, in the same way that when people like talk about like a goth GF or whatever, you know, yeah. or like when people post those like Maslow's hierarchy of needs uh, memes, where it's like, you know, <laughs> like sloppy top from like a girl in a sweater or something. I don't, I don't know. But it's like, it's this, this kind of like, um, like poetry of like heterosexual, um, like, sexual frustration you know mm-hmm. like another really good example of this is like this there's this kind of like copy pasta that's like uh, like i need to fuck like an aho kind of thing and it just right. goes into all this like lurid like graphic detail about you know like this imaginary person like blowing him and stuff and it's it's just like funny because i think all of that stuff is like written with However kind of like gratuitous or offensive it is, um, it's also like written with a sort of self-conscious awareness of the fact that it's like transgressing something. Kind of it's it's like uh it's kind of offensive and like it's something that <laughs> like as a as a man we're all kind of like vaguely embarrassed by, which is why it's like funny to read, you know? Yeah. Totally. Um, whereas like you know and obviously it's like it's not you can say it's like the opposite case to like gay sex in popular culture that's obviously that is obviously fraught in its own ways but within the sort of like microcosmic world 
of the swing pool library within this like scene of people, the people who are like associated together with like the quarry and stuff. It's that kind of like um, just sexual expression is completely like normalized and, and just everybody is like sort of used to it, you know? Um, and even just like to this, like, you know, it's like, it gets really like gross, right? It gets down oh, to like yeah. a really real, like up close with like, you know, like anuses and, and like dicks and stuff like that, right? Um, but it's just, it's all just like communicated. So sort of like uh, unashamedly. So it, mm -hmm. it's like, it's kind of fascinating to like, just see um, male sexuality in in that light you know um no i know exactly what you're talking about and i think about this all the time because i th feel like the heterosexual male sex drive is like proliferated into advertising and tiktok and e-girls and instagram influencers it's like you poor men have like a <laughs> constant stream of like images like like just fucking avalanching at you of like women like pushing their like tits together and stuff it's like you yeah. have that all the time but gay men have the opposite of that we have like nothing but like men like like clamped together in their little dress shirts and so when we have sex and like go to like a cruising spot or something you know we have a lot more like um liberation and frankness about it and it does break my heart because I feel like in the 70s I think heterosexuality was like trying desperately to push towards a more open evocation of all of these sexual drives I mean you think about things like women in love like pulling back on D.H. Lawrence sure, and yeah, just trying yeah. to like explode into this like field of sex but like it did the opposite and like I like what's even sexy in media anymore. I like, I don't know. It doesn't yeah, seem like I mean, there's anything for me. You know, I think that there is like, not, not to like uh, commit the crime of like essentialism or whatever, but I think um, you could broadly generalize and say that like male sexuality in general, like heterosexual and homosexual is more connected to a kind of like excess. Totally. Um, and I mean, it, it's kind of funny because, like, you know, I was like a teenager. I was like thinking of myself in like sex positive terms. I like remember like very self consciously determining that that was like the attitude I wanted to have, you know. Um, and I was like reading, um, you know, all these like Alan Moore uh, graphic novels, who I remain a huge fan of to this day, but who has like an incredibly he, he himself, you know, in his work has a real like frankness about sexuality uh, and even in its like darkest forms or it's like most predatory manifestations. And people are always like criticizing him for this as though it's like some kind of uh, like sinister revelation of his own like predilections. And I, do, I don't think that's like the case at all. Um, Cause like there's, you know, the sort of like line is, um, like, oh, there's, like, a rape in every one of, like, Alan Moore's comics or something. Um, but I think that it's, like, he has such a sort of, um, like, encyclopedic view of human relations. And I think he sees this kind of... He basically sees, like, sexuality as, like, 
a, a kind of essential part of that that has to be confronted and examined and has to uh, like play a overlapping role in all of the characters lives you know who are like going about so like to me like growing up that was kind of like normal right you know like right. that, was, that was like to me like a frank adult mature attitude towards sexuality and then I guess you know I've become like a kind of a big like critic of I guess what people call sex positivity um and again it's just because like if anything it seems like in itself to become a very like deeply repressive totalitarian and kind of contrived thing you know um and it's well I mean it's because like sex positivity as an institution comes from women yeah i, I did you think oh, wait that is, sorry that's that not is, a really misogynistic i mean that's no, just what I mean, it is i mean it's just true like because like women are not the designers of sex i mean andrea dworkin my feminist queen agrees with me about this it's like women are not the designers yeah. of sex they are the receptacles of it and you have to find a way to uh turn that inherent violence into something more transcendent but nonetheless like mm. women are not the cultural designers of sex they are only horny if they have like fucked up male sex brain and all of my closest female friends are the ones of that breed but in any (laughs) case it's like like you can't like it's just you can't like design sex positivity from a female perspective it's impossible well you know it's it's funny because like on that like Foucault history of sexuality episode you know um I can't remember the name of the uh nice lady that you had on to discuss oh yes Donna Donna, yeah, who, yeah, he was like a really pleasant chat between the two of you. But one of the things you're talking about was like OnlyFans, you know, and um, you know, like I just think that is like the most like sterile, like unsexy, uh, <laughs> like kind of repellent, um, like form of pornography <laughs> that's ever been created, you know. Um, it's like I think it might be that for women, but I do have to say from my swimming pool library perspective, if somebody wants to like lean over on OnlyFans, I'm like not that opposed anymore. I like can't even like be upset about it anymore. It's like I, for women, it does seem gross. And this is just my gay misogyny showing up again, like but like it does seem like degrading and sad when a woman does OnlyFans, but like when a man does, I don't give a fuck. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't like have that much. Uh, I, well, I don't have any experience. Exactly. Well, I don't right? have any experience <laughs> with any side of it, you know. Like, other than like, just you know, uh, on Twitter, you see like, uh, like the occasional person will come up with like trying to advertise themselves in someone's like comments or something. Um, but yeah, like I think you know, like to me, it's like the concern is just as you say like there's just all this stuff that exists to kind of like soak up that like excessive sexual energy um from men and to just sort of like i don't even think it's like diverted into anything now there's not even any kind of like cybernetic exploitation of it it's just sort of like drained away into the abyss um and i I don't know i think it's like a lot of uh (laughs) men lead lives of like intense kind of like loneliness and just sort of like mechanical satiation of desire that has like gradually lost all its sort of like color of human interest 
Mm-hmm. Um, this is why I'm so happy I'm gay. Honestly, like, this is, like, why no amount of cancellation will ever ruin me because it's, like, <laughs> if I can't get it, like, it's, like, it's not working out for me, there is a park 12 minutes walk away from my house that I could go to right now and there are eight men waiting to give or receive blowjobs. Yeah, that's, like, unimaginable, you know, for, like, the majority of heterosexual guys. It's not fair. Um, I literally feel like there should be, like, some sort of, like, cum receptacle or something. I, like, don't even know what it is. Surely there's enough women who want to do this, but, like, um, because of, like, Me Too and because of, like, a quote, sex positivity, unquote, which is not sex positivity at all. I just feel like it's been proliferated, as well, you I said, think, into you know, OnlyFans and commercials. Well, the, the problem with, like, sex positivity now, I think, is that, like, this is my kind of, like, analysis of it, is it's, like, premised on the idea of, like, that sex is good, like, with a capital G. And I don't think that that's actually, like, you know, to go back to, like, Alan Moore again and his, like, depictions of sex, I wouldn't say that his depictions of sex are as an, an unalloyed good, you know? Like, I don't oh, think no, that sex horrifies me. It, like, it doesn't it's like do just really scary. <laughs> it's like the, the complexity up. of it. Yeah, like and it's like, um, and I, I, what ends up happening is because these people are like talking about like they're always talking about like sex in the abstract, right? Like there's no there's no like embodiment of of sex in their like discourse, right? No, <laughs> it's always just like it's like pure like theoretical nice thing that is always good, and then what happens is like if. Uh, something goes wrong or people are behaving in like a, a, an evil or like malicious way which obviously does happen as well like it's their crime isn't that they've like harmed another person it's that they've like sullied the good name of sex and so like mm. you know like sex has to be like set over and above them and like the act itself becomes sort of like uh subordinated to this kind of like entirely like formal contractual uh like idea of it you know where it, i mean which the is, contractual is thing like is especially ideal. true yeah yeah and it's like it's, it's just it's, like it's just like 50 shades of gray like reproduced like everywhere like the the fantasy is like bdsm but like only as like erotic fiction like people yeah, want to be able to yeah. like have like specific like rules and contracts in place to like sign things yeah, and so what I will say is like, I know you know I don't I don't want to like sound misogynistic or whatever because I also think that the like culture of sex positivity has like failed young women enormously, like mm-hmm. uh, and you know so that I, you know they are they are like absolutely counted amongst its sort of like victims or the people who has failed, but I I do think that like um, the sort of feminine dimension of the whole thing is i mean this is like something that's you know i think like anna kashian and, and dasha always talks about on red scare was just like the inability of people to like take responsibility for their desires you know yeah okay and like when you look at the swimming pool library to like bring it back i mean like this is a book entirely about like the responsibility of desire and then suffering because of it like Mm-hmm. Um, something that was, like, f- flung at me nonstop for the last week is that I'm gonna, like, die of AIDS, or, like, um, I keep bringing this quote up, but it was, like, really good, but someone told me I was gonna drown in a pool of my own rectal incontinence, um, and it's, like, yeah, I mean, like, the con- the thing is, is that gay 
men have been contemplating the consequences of sex positivity since fucking 1978. Like, we have been all thinking about this en masse for, like, almost 50 years. Like, Larry Kramer published Faggots in 78, which means that people were thinking about it long before then. The thing is, is that gay men have been able to establish a liberated culture where they can freely express their desires, have... Um, easy systems of access to relieve their sexual urges and then also have, like, mediums and, you know, forms in which they can talk about their... Not talk about, but, like, actually, like, work through and, like, act on the consequences. And we experienced the consequences worse than anyone else because we had AIDS. And people, like try to like paint it as this thing that like oh like gay men AIDS doesn't target gay people AIDS targets straight people everyone like straight Mm, people gay people everyone but the fact of the matter is that straight people don't have as much like rectal sex as we do so we live in the infinite shadow of our consequences which even before AIDS we did because it hurts to have anal sex and something about this book about the swimming pool library is that it is coded and blood, and shit, and piss, and fecal matter, and disaster, and violence. Because gay people understand that our actions have consequences. Even if it doesn't seem that way, we do. And, like, the whole, like, sex-positive thing with, with straight women is that they cannot possibly, in the same way, understand the consequences because they don't have as serious of, like, a mortality about it as we do. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's like it's just. Sorry, the... I just like screamed. <laughs> no, no, no. It's, like... it, yeah, it was. Uh, it's very powerful. It's like I think um, it's those sort of like like irreducible, um, just like you know, physical realities, right? I guess like the ro- the revolting realities is. <laughs> the phrase yeah. that like Jack uh, like um, picked out recently from someone one of someone's posts um, of like the human body and of sex and all, and all of this stuff just like um, just being reckoned with you know I and, have to interact with an asshole like yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. that's horrifying like it's not normal it's really disturbing but it's a part of like what has to happen because of the way that i was like brought up or whatever whatever it could possibly be and that does not make me like some cursed perverted object to be scolded upon by catholics it means that i understand the human experience more than you not not you as in you but (laughs) no no i understand (laughs) yeah yeah um but no, I mean, it's like, it's also just like, there's this kind of also this theme running through it of like, um, it's just like British upper class institutions, like colonial administration and uh, like British boarding schools, especially like Definitely. being these kind of like sites of like covert um, sort of like sexual experience that are almost like they're, they're almost like a, a sort of like recognized part of the system you know like but they're just yeah. like, not talked about um so i found that like very interesting as well but like yeah but you know like in nantwich's uh diaries he like talks about like um you know being kind of like 
uh, I guess like I guess it's like a, a kind of rape. It's like a little bit ambiguous, but he gets like sodomized by one of the older boys who climbs into bed fully clothed with him and stuff like that. Um, I was so, thinking about that passage in particular because yeah, he like yeah. bleeds all over the sheets after. Yeah, yeah. Which is just like, it's so like visceral, you know? Oh, it's deeply upsetting. It's like repulsive to read like i like closed the book i've read this book like probably like three or four times and every single time it's like deeply upsetting yeah yeah um but then you know but then it's like it's it's also kind of like i don't feel like narratively it's particularly like marked out as it's not like there's any sort of like reassuring um like framing around it that like marks it off as like oh no this is this is like a bad thing that we can like put to one side and we know it's bad or whatever it's still like it's like an essential part of like the sexual history of this character and it's like a in its own way it's like a formative experience and stuff and then it's also like horrific but it's like it's just the reality of something horrific you know it's like the reality of of sex that is like a dimension of sex that has to be sort of uh confronted Mm -hmm. Something very similar to that scene, like, happened to me recently, and, like, it's true. Like, it isn't, like, this permanent, like, death on your soul that you have to, like, spend the rest of your life reliving and recounting for the sake of activism. It's, like, a brutal human fact. And mm. kind of, like, in the in the Furbank way, it's, like, the way he talks about, like, conversation and, like, these, uh really kind of vapid interactions between people. Like, that's a brutal human fact as well. It's like, we're subjected to these wretched instances of suffering that we'll, like, never be able to, like, uh, undo, but they just keep happening, and you can't, like, spend the rest of your life making philosophy out of it. You have to accept it as, like, a glimmering shadow of your beautiful artistic life that you can channel into something better. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm sorry to hear about that by the way. Well, it's quite alright. It's over now. So <laughs> <laughs> it's all done now. Um uh, one of the big points of the swimming pool library that I wanted to bring up is that uh the novel is kind of caught between the narrator and uh this older man Charles uh who commissions the protagonist to uh write a sort of biography about his life uh, based off his diary entries and his pictures and there is a really beautiful thread and through line of like um memory as it's passed over time and all of like these uh brutal cruising scenes and rape and violence and pissing um is kind of uh juxtaposed with this uh echo from the early 20th century where we get appearances from Furbank himself as a character. And I wanted to know what you kind of like thought about like the appearance of, of memory and the past in this novel. Oh, that's like really interesting. I, I'm, I don't know. Um... Cause I don't know either. That's why I ask. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it sort of reminded me a little bit of in the, in the sort of like memoirs of, it, like what I talked about on uh, the Perfume Nationalist uh, with Jack and Orton was the movie The Naked Civil Servant uh, with John Hughes playing Quentin Crisp. Uh, which have you ever seen that? I watched it after the episode and I loved it. 
Oh yeah, I'm oh, I'm I'm really like heartened that you watched it after the episode because that it might be like my favorite movie of all time, and like it it kind of makes me cry every time I see it. Um, but it's one of the reasons I find it so like fascinating is because of the like, sort of insight it has into like sort of 1930s and 40s like British gay life. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know it was like it was kind of cool in that sense, and there's like a I mean, the 80s is, like, a very long time ago now, but, like, Will is this, like, kind of young person who kind of... um, It's, like, interesting to encounter that world again through his eyes because he's also fairly, like, um, alienated from it, I would say. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's, like, a very different sort of, like, world to the one that he inhabits. I mean, although there are, like, sort of constancies, there are, like, um, points of contact between them. Um... But, you know, I, I like, I also, um, I really liked, like, the Furbank cameo in it. <laughs> I was, like, really, really excited when that, that sort of, like, character he's described before he's identified. Um, and, you know, it, like, describes him engaging in this, like, typical kind of, like, Furbankian eccentricity which is like <laughs> seems like very true to life from accounts of his uh of what he was he was getting up to but it's like he's described as like smoothing his hands all the way down his legs at this like in this cafe so that his head almost goes under the table um and, and things like that and he's he's like i think it's shortly before his death uh, and he's expecting to die and he like says so to the characters who are to uh, like, including Lord Nandwich, who is kind of perturbed by it. <laughs> um, but like, yeah, I don't know. I, I also like. I felt like there was this kind of um, like punning on the title of like the swing pool library, because pools kind of recur throughout um, throughout the book. So like the first one that we're in, uh, introduced to is the pool at the Corinthian Club. Um, which is described very, very nicely, uh, like very poetically, um, as this like very dark, shadowy, cool, kind of relaxed environment. Um, and then there's also like the Roman bath in Charles Nant, which is basement with its like mosaic tile floor, right. um, which is a kind of like another sort of like subterranean you know, like swimming pool. But then you don't realize until later when uh, Will reads of it in Nantwich's diaries that the swimming pool library is actually Nantwich's name for the pool um, that is like attached to his school, um, to his like boarding school, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it has its own like open air changing rooms and stuff so that you have another kind of like one of these like boxy spaces that unless i misread is is kind of like open to the sky as well which no yeah another totally. like interesting kind of uh you know another instance of like liminality i guess because it's it's sort of simultaneously inside and outside and it's an incredibly like romantic i think um image of like open sky and the you know the moon and the stars and stuff like it's it's really really something but I, I liked the idea of like all of these places are kind of like almost like the same place 
you know, they're like variations on the same place throughout time. Right. Um, but there's also some kind of like, I don't know, like interdimensionally or something. Like, I like the idea that they're kind of like the same location. They're the same sort of like site for these like very specialized kind of relationships between men. No, you have it exactly right. Because like the way that like gay men interact is like in the Evangelion imaginary, like secondary universe. It's like the it's like the other world repeating timelines where like uh Yeah. We have to construct like these like beautiful second realms out of like the history of the past and no matter how many like political layers are like stacked on top of us, like the exact same thing is happening as it did in like grecian times it's literally the same thing all the time always um just with extra layers of politics on top of it yeah yeah and just like separated by like time and space but like kind of uh the same thing incarnating itself yeah Uh, and with that the beautiful beautiful like blue sky and the ecstasy of seeing something beautiful in front of you uh, it's a timeless feeling that no amount of culture or politics can crush. As long as there's, like, something beautiful in the world, so long as there is the sun, the moon, the stars, and the earth, like, there will always be something beautiful, I think. And um, th- this book has, like, a lot of, like, hardship in it, especially towards the end. You find out that the protagonist's uh, father is responsible for, like, the end of the successful gay life of the... Um, older man Charles and uh you know his he gets violently abused his lover gets arrested there's all of these things but even towards the end of the novel he returns to a movie theater uh, to see a retrospective on the life of Furbank himself and still finds uh, something beautiful there so with all of this in mind as I'm re-philosophizing my universe um, what do you think we should take from these two beautiful novels into the new world? Um, uh, what a question. Um, I mean, oh, let me have a little, little, little thing to come up with something good. <laughs> no, think about it all you want. I mean, I don't know either. That's why I always ask, because, you know, today, we have talked about a lot today. We went through... Like, the horrors of sexual positivity and the contrasting worlds of heterosexuals and homosexuals. Like, I really feel like this is, like, a, f- a big final, like, thought on all of this. And, like, reflecting back on everything thus far, I'm like, I don't, I don't even know what to take out of it either. Well, I think, you know, like, one of the interesting things for me about the, like, depiction of sex in, um, in... The swimming pool library is that it's like very it's often like very perfunctory and it's like transacted across these like random encounters with people or very casually with people who are kind of acquaintances or just friends um but you know at the same time there's this like um not always but like sometimes even with these like perfunctory sexual encounters between people who will never see each other again or just continue as like acquaintances they are still sort of um like highly emotional experiences and very like uh emotionally important and significant to the people who have them 
um they're not like this completely sort of like they're not like completely meaningless in a human sense of the term right um they're, and they're do you like, think that sex like is still that way now do you think that like i have no idea about this for straight people honestly but like do you think that like uh heterosexuals like still do they get moved this way by sex like i have no idea i mean i do <laughs> i can't like speak for other people i feel like i'm a bit like uh a bit weird you know i don't think i like um i don't say this in like a kind of like boasting way uh, and uh-huh. i'm like, highly uncertain about it but i don't feel like i'm a good example of like um <laughs> like typical like, emotionality about these things um because i'm very just like you know, I don't, I don't like like transactional sex, and you know, my like experiences with it have have always been like uh, sort of like in the end, like fairly unpleasant. Um, so I like, I like to have like a, you know, like, <laughs> you know, I like want to be uh, in a relationship with somebody I love, you know, but um, I didn't, I don't know. I mean, I that that alone makes me feel kind of a bit like freakish um no no, no. Don't, don't feel freakish well i mean maybe do I, I don't know because i feel the same way like um every single sexual interaction um brings me closer to sublimity and every single time i'm like sexually like interact with any person in any case um it like completely wrecks my worldview and i have to like completely reconsider the universe yeah that sounds very extreme yeah but, like, no it's i mean true. that's true i mean like that it's really like you know it's how you kind of learn as you grow older right through having these like encounters and experiences and stuff like i feel like like you know the 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 internet like social media has this effect of like um sort of turning everything into just extremes right so like um in this like sort of like internet mythology or like folklore or whatever you just have like the chads and the incels and the chads are just like you know like fucking a different woman every week or something and then the insult incels like just never get any pussy um but i mean you know i think like the majority of people's experiences is like somewhere in the middle you know i think so too yeah <laughs> like i like i had like um you know like i had like a uh, I, I guess what you'd call like a high school girlfriend and stuff, you know? Um, and I've had like relationships since then. I've had like sexual encounters since then and stuff, but I'm not like, I'm not <laughs> like, <laughs> like banging in a new girl every day or something. You know what I mean? Like, right. I think that's like pretty, pretty typical to most guys experience, to be honest. Like, I'm, I mean, I don't know. I think probably like, like dating apps and things have kind of, made that worse they've like concretized those like extremes in a way um because oh, for straight just... people i think dating apps are like the worst yeah. thing that's ever happened because like it, i like i have very handsome friends like very like nice looking guys but just like because of like the way the metrics work on those apps like they get like totally like shut down well it's like yeah it's just this like algorithmic sorting effect right and then i think also it's like um i don't think there any longer really exists like a heterosexual template for like hitting on people, you know, like just out, <laughs> out in the world. Like I just, I just think it's it doesn't gone. exist anymore. Like, and the one of the consequences of this like widespread like atomization of of people, like where I don't really 
feel like a, there's any such thing as like a kind of a public space anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, you know, like the people in the swimming pool library, they're kind of like, by default, they're not inhabiting public space in a sexual way to begin with. So there's this kind of like twilight other world that's like built up out of this like network of institutions like the Corinthian and cottages and, you know, public bathrooms and stuff. Um, but like, yeah, I'd say like now, you know, going up and speaking to a person who you don't know in public is like just inherently kind of highly risky. Um, Absolutely. So I don't know. I don't know what's going to like happen as a result of that. I mean, I'm not like, I'm not like personally worried about it because, you know, I just think um, all you have to do really is become a kind of like a fun person. <laughs> People are attracted to you. <laughs> um, but I think that's actually really true. Like, um, I have a lot of anxieties about the same issues you're bringing up for everyone. Not myself because, you know, I'll always be gay and I live in Japan where, um, you know, realistically it's not going to be normalized anytime soon. Like, things are going to probably be, like, the mm-hmm. same around here for a long time. Uh, but I, I do have, like, that kind of fear uh, on behalf of other people. But I think, like, kind of the answer that we can derive from this is that if you can sensitively perceive the world and you can listen to the stupid conversations around you about things that don't matter at all, like, literally at all. And then you can appreciate the beauty in the bodies of people around you and what you see every day. If, if you can incorporate that into your daily being, like I think both Furbank and, and Hollinghurst did, then I think you can find a way, no matter how painful it might be, to truly embrace a worthwhile life. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, one of the things I remember thinking when I first read Furbank was like, this is just like a Twitter timeline, <laughs> you know? Absolutely. Like, this is just like, like Twitter is the kind of like modern day, like Furbankian novel where people are kind of like, like hinting at their emotional needs through these like jokes or, uh, or like throwaway comments or like very like aestheticized attacks on like quote unquote types of guy, you know. So it's like it's like in a different. Um, it's not as beautiful as Furbank, uh, always. Um, but something in that uppermost superficial layer is extremely yeah. beautiful and sublime. Yeah, because you know it's like everybody, even you know the trads. God bless them. It's like I feel like a kind of like um, there are articulating a sort of like wider thing that's going on in the, in the background, you know, like they're articulating their own anxieties, their own like fears, their own like um, confusion before this like monstrous reality that's acquiring shape in front of us all. Um, And I think almost in a way that like transcends their own, like rather like parochial kind of moralistic concerns. Um, there's there's always that like you know emotional undercurrent there. I think so, too.